content warning for discussions of mental illness and sexual assault. You're listening to the Billy Shears Club. I'm your host, Caleb Clark, and with me today we have, what's this? Two people. Yes, we do have two people, because we're funky. Uh, these are Eric Ray and Maddie Campbell. How are you doing today, guys? I'm pretty good. Well. Didn't step on each other's toes too bad there. <laughs> I was looking at your icon on the recording like, do you talk? Are you turning off your mic? Do I talk <laughs> And well, today we have three albums for you folks. You get an extra for the money you're not paying. It's uh, going to be a ladies alt-rock night of the 90s. We have Tidal by Fiona Apple. We have Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. And we have Everybody Else Is Doing It, So Why Don't We by The Cranberries. And uh, how about you start us off with a little bit about Fiona there, oh, Eric. Awesome. Yeah, so Title by Fiona Apple. Um, this is her debut album, and this was my suggestion for the podcast. I think this album fits really well within the trend of um, alternative rock, Baroque pop as um, pop music writ large in the 90s. Um, it, there's a lot of really evident talent on display here. She was 18 when the album was recorded and released. Um, so Fiona Apple, let's just start off from the beginning. She's the daughter of two showbiz professionals. She was born and raised in New York City and split her time between there and L.A. growing up, attending various public and private schools in both cities. And many of her lyrics throughout her body of work, including this record, are diaristic. They recall the events of these earlier days. She was encouraged by her parents to be musical from an early age, so she's classically trained on the piano and the guitar, and she cites Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald as early musical influences, which we can kind of see in the jazz, kind of see a jazz influence in her work, even on this record here. Um, so how she got big, while attending high school in Los Angeles, she passed a demo tape, including an early version of Never Is A Promise and two other unreleased songs along to a family friend who babysat for a music executive. Eventually, it made its way along the pipeline to Sony music exec producer Andrew Slater, who was floored by her voice and the precocious maturity of her lyrics. She was 17 at the time he got the demo tape, and, and Never Is A Promise she had just written the previous year, which, you know, wouldn't be expected of someone that young but she was signed to sony in early 1996 and the album was out in july and together they crafted a sound based on fiona's interest at the time in classical composers um hip-hop the trip-hop of the 90s and old school singers like the two i mentioned and nina simone so there's a ton to talk about here musically um how about we just dive right in and take a look at the tracks Sure. So, yeah, what, what were your guys' favorites here? Um, I know my favorite was Sleep to Dream, that banger of an opener. It's kind of a yes. mantra song for me. Yeah. She kind of com comes out swinging full force and she establishes, kind of establishing the groundwork for the personality she comes to project throughout her career. She's very self assured and cocky here, she's sharp tongued. She always has something prescient to say. Um, I'm thinking of an interview right now that she did with the Washington Post in 1999. She, 
Yeah, I, I saw it somewhere when I was going over material for this, but she started writing in order to more effectively argue with her parents. Essentially, she was <laughs> using her album as a way of expressing her personality. She said, the whole reason I wanted to make an album in the first place was because I was so tired of trying to explain my personality to people. So I guess this is a really I, good snapshot of her personality at this moment in time. You know? Yeah, how did you feel, Maddie? Yeah, Sleep to Dream was actually my pick for the best of the album because I love it so much. Um, my, think, my favorite song, I had a lot of tracks that I really liked, but one that I really want to highlight is Carrion because Carrion specifically grabbed my attention with its production, both because it's really different from the rest of the album and because she incorporates a very strong change in sound between, oh gosh, is it verse and chorus? I just know that there's points where so. it's the typical rest of the album, and then all of a sudden it bursts out with like drums and bells, and it goes to like this almost mm, ethereal yeah. choral moment, and then goes back to what she's usually sounding like and grabs your attention, which is great for an album closer. <laughs> yeah, it switches between styles, doesn't it? It really grabs your attention. Um, and I just, I thought the lyric, the um, metaphor that she used, what was, what was it? It was like the my feel for you boys decaying like the carrion of murdered prey or something like that. I was like, I, I thought that was a little cheesy, um, but we'll get to cheesy metaphors she, later. We, she's we still have the land to talk about. <laughs> I know, I know. We'll get to cheesy metaphors from grown women later, Alanis. Um, I will say, fun fact, I ordinarily don't like to agree with Kanye West on principle, but he has cited Fiona Apple's lyrics as a strong inspiration for a lot of his own work because her vocabulary is just that good. Yeah, Sleep to Dream was uh, one of his favorite tracks, actually. It kind of inspired him to make music, from what I heard. Oh, go figure. So, yeah, there's a ton to talk about here. Um, Caleb, what say you? Yeah, as far as the ones we talked about so far, uh, Sleep to Dream, definitely a really good opener. It's, you know, the things that we've yeah. said. Sort of, you know, sets her as sort of this very kind of otherworldly figure who's just coming in with a voice. Like, I think you had mentioned maturity. She sounds a lot, she sounds like someone in, like, her early 30s. So, and just, like, coming in with all this sort of, like, spacey lounge music and just being, like, I'm really cool. I don't need to sleep the dream. I'm done with you. Boy. And so that was a really cool opener. And then the carry on definitely was also really nice. You know, those both sort of negative themes that we'll get into. But my other favorite that I would point out is probably Criminal because that's the one where she's having the most fun and she's got a really good beat. So it's a shallow reason to make it my favorite, but that's why. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making the signature song your favorite. It's especially when it's as good as it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it hit 21 on the Hot 100, so it isn't necessarily a smash hit, but it did win her a Grammy for the Best Female Vocal Rock Performance that year. And she's still winning Grammys to this day. I mean, she won one for Shamika, her song from last year. which So she's still very well respected by the music industry, if that me, even if she didn't ask for it. But, um... And I mean, she also sold 2.9 million copies off of this album, which, to be fair, was in the 90s when, like, you could sneeze and get a million records sold, but like, still great for like artsy experimental rock. And now it's just shy of triple platinum. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's buy the album. <laughs> <laughs> get it done. Wait, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Um, Criminal, she actually wrote that song in 45 minutes when 
Everyone had gone to lunch because she had been pressured by a friend about not writing music and she felt she needed a hit. So if you believe her cranked it out in 45 minutes story, it's especially impressive. The lyrics on this track, they're very raw and mature, especially for an 18 year old songwriter. She's kind of talking yeah. about exploiting her body and her sexuality to get what she wants um, and manipulate men, which is a theme I think we can see. Um, like the dealing with men is a, and female rage, I think is a theme we can see across all three records here, but you see it definitely a lot here. Yeah, yeah which I... makes the music video all the more interesting, honestly. Yeah, heroin her... exploitation is what I call it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I, you did not put too fine of a point on it. Like, you watch that video, and then you learn that she was struggling with an ED at the time, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> like, I couldn't even yeah. enjoy the video because well, I was, was... Too distracted by wanting to give her a bowl of ice cream and telling her it would be okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's been a consistent theme without, throughout her career, actually. She... She has been very outspoken about eating disorders and her personal struggles with depression, anxiety, um, you know, body image issues, eating disorders, all of that. Um, and that it is it is definitely a sobering thing to realize because she hadn't at the time been open about it. This is all after the fact that she's still 18 here. She's still making it big in the music industry. So at the time, yes, definitely. I see where you're coming from. I would say my big observation as far as like criminal specifically is like sort of the lens I ended up taking for the entire album, which is what I'm personally calling independent woman breakup trauma, which is basically the ones that we've mentioned so far, uh, Sleep the Dream, Criminal, and uh, Carrie Ann are all very, I'm cool, I'm breaking up with this guy who's like just kind of foolish and I'm done with him. But a lot of them are super remorseful and sad breakup songs that seem to have a lot of regret in them and pain and like i sort of ended up at first it was a very weird listening experience especially because uh sleep the dream suddenly just switches right to sullen girl which is just a very i'm so sad i feel like i'm under the ocean type song but, like i started to realize i think that might be part of the thing where it's like on the one hand she is this strong, independent woman, but also in order to become that, she had to like go through a bunch of different obstacles about expectations that were placed upon her, and some of those have been internalized. Where like you know, she still feels you know, in some way, obligation to reciprocate love, or she feels that she was too harsh with someone when she was just making boundaries and that sort of thing. And so like you sort of get this weird psychological profile. At least I feel someone who's very deeply conflicted and working through all this mumbo-jumbo that I'm spouting. I mean, Sullen Girl is also about her surviving assault when she was 12, so that's oh. also hinted at. Oh. Mm -hmm. I, which doesn't, yeah, line about, that doesn't disprove your sorry, argument, it just compounds it. Uh, no, go ahead. The line about he took my pearl, I really like the bridge on that song especially. I, I think Sullen Girl is a really fascinating song because it just... <laughs> It builds, it doesn't really snag your attention, but it builds and it builds and you just, I don't know, she draws you into the story. And by the time you get to the bridge, you realize what she's speaking about and it's just like kind of devastating. 
given the context <laughs> that you were hinting at earlier. Um, yeah, but I don't have too much to more to say to, about that one. Sorry. Uh, to connect to what was being said, um, the two big themes I kind of pinpointed for this album were power and self-discovery, because Tidal Vary is this very much is this album about Fiona Apple, both figuring herself out and taking charge of a situation that was sort of handed to her and learning how to take control as somebody who can make her own way. Because on the one hand, you have like Sleep to Dream, you have Criminal, even Shadowboxer to an extent, but you also have like Sullen Girl and Pale September, which are these more like introspective songs. Yes, yes. Um, I definitely agree with that a lot. There's, there's kind of this dichotomy between um, this appearance of strength that she projects because she has to, because she feels that she has to, um, because of all the stuff that she's internalized, and the actual vulnerability and her self-doubt that she kind of lets us in on in a couple of songs. Um, and there's an interplay between that in a few of of a few of the tracks that we see here, like Shadow Boxer, I know you mentioned that, that we all agree that's the most indicative song. Yay or nay? Yeah. I picked it for most indicative, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I think this it's a really great song. It, it was actually her debut single, the world's general introduction to her after she was signed. Um, and she, at the time, she received critical comparisons to Nina Simone, Carol King, and early Elton John, which... Okay, high praise. Um, Deserved, if yeah, you ask I, me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, her, her voice is incredible. What a hero of Elton John. This... Like early Elton John. Like, was this... The Your Song era. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that era. I was, I was thinking like, Crocodile Rock. Not Rocket Man. <laughs> Although Fiona no. Apple wanted to wear like, an absolutely gaudy lycra suit and some feathers and go out on stage and play piano. I'd go to that concert. Mm. I honestly oh, like I love could, that. She could honestly pull that out. There is definitely a very like theater kid vibe to this album with just how spacious and piano heavy the entire thing is. And the big choruses. Maddie, I want to see the concert idea that you did that you um, mentioned with her newest album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. I would love to see a live show of that. She has like this really playful um, tone that she maintains throughout her work. And I think you don't see it quite as much on this album, but the rest of her discography I think you see it on the first matures... taste a little. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, can we just like stay on Shadowbox for a little? Sorry. Um, no, no, sure. Sorry. But there's like a lot of wrestling with the internal confusion that comes from having one's heart toyed with it. It's very much like an 18 year old perspective. I think that we see here. Yeah. It's, it seems like there's been a lot of entanglement and manipulation and paranoia and conflicting wills. And just this image of the shadow boxer, someone who's fighting against something that's not necessarily there, but knows something might come back, you know, always staying on guard in case he ever shows up again. Because there's a lot of her in there. It's a, it's a very poignant song. It also sort of puts her in like the intersection of the position and appearance of power versus the position and reality of weakness. Because it's like having to take up the boxing in order to protect yourself after the situation. So. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's arranged so beautifully, and there's, like, a lot of clear evidence 
of like she's wrestling with some very adult ideas and coming into her own um <laughs> and there's a lot of musical skill and merit here obviously but there's like yeah you know we we see her maturing in real time i think on these lyrics which are very diaristic very much her opening her heart out um what did you guys think of Never is a Promise? That was the original, uh, one of the tracks on that original demo that she sent that just totally floored the producers at Sony. I do like the line that Never is a Promise. Um, I will admit that around that point, the album, it's not that it's samey per se, but after, at that point in the album, I was kind of learning what to expect from title. And so I went back and forth between that and The Child is Gone for my pick for the worst. Not because any of them are particularly bad, just because at that point I was like, okay, you could probably remove one of these and not lose too much. I don't, I don't know. I think... Okay, I mean... Go ahead. I was going to say, Never never as a Promise is definitely the most like straightforward, I felt like, emotionally. You know, it's this very clear narrative of like, growing apart and being disappointed by someone that she loved that's just not there anymore. But I wouldn't, and it's, I guess it does sort of have the similar sound, but I definitely wouldn't call it, like, anywhere near the child is gone to me personally, which was my personal worst pick. It was more that they were one after the other, and they were the only two that I didn't remember having strong emotions about. <laughs> I, I kind of like Never as a Promise, just as it is the bluntest and therefore you know sort of fits nicely because you know the rest of it is very sharp and wordy but this one is just more relaxed yeah i caleb i definitely agree with you on this one um i definitely i think it's like a mid track as far as like if i were to rank the tracks for me but look i think we see a lot of really good pr promise so to speak on this one you know um, she she feels like she's maturing here, and I, as she sees through her lover's aphorisms and all of the it, it'll be okay BS, you know she's kind of realizing that she's being lied to and calling his bluff, and you know she's being a lot more direct here. It's not snarky. She feels like she's having more of a conversation, um, and the arrangement is really gorgeous. And so yeah, I don't know. It's it's a mid track for me, but I, I enjoy it. I wouldn't put it anywhere near the least as well. But yeah, it's totally I a valid pick to have. If like, you didn't feel a type of way about it, that's fine. Yeah, my problem was that there wasn't a track I really disliked on this album, so I kind of just had to choose one nominally. <laughs> I definitely agree on The Child Is Gone. Eh. My problem... I like the chorus, because, like, I'm a sucker for a song about losing innocence. It's, it's probably half the reason for... Some of my favorite songs, like uh, When I Grow Up My Garbage. Like, I just like that sentiment a lot. But also, the like the entire first verse is just her finding very pretentious ways to say, leave me alone right now. And that just got irritating very quickly. So. Yeah. I... Speaking as a former pretentious 18-year-old, valid. <laughs> We'll say it at least. Oh, sorry. Her, yeah, her veneer starts to slip a little near the end here. I don't, I I'll, like lyrically speaking, I don't feel like the mm. um, tracks near the end are quite as strong. I do agree about, yeah, it's, with the exception of Carrie, and that one's fun. 
Yeah. We'll say it's um, nice because like of the other recurring images seem to be like having a piece of you missing. Like it also showed up on Carrion, which is really obvious. And obviously, the child's gone, having your innocence be gone. It's just like a very interesting piece where it's like on the one her constructing this persona and on the one hand is like very singular but also has something missing from it and sort of honing in on that it was a very interesting thread to pick up on totally totally um before i think we touched on pretty much everything uh pale september did you guys feel any type of way about that one that was one of the tracks i really liked okay sure i was i was feeling kind of mad also it is a little cheesy i'll admit that but i i can i have a high tolerance for cheese (laughs) oh same same i guess it was just not quite my kind of cheese it was limburger instead of you know provolone it was okay. It was like, you know... That wasn't like, a very apt metaphor. This song doesn't stink. Yeah, I also just... I like I like that in the middle of all this, like, intense introspection, and I'm a strong, confident, independent 18-year-old, and you can't tell me what to do, there's this one kind of sweet little song of just, I have a boyfriend in the winter, and it's nice. Yeah, I mean, it's cute. It's a breather. I just... It, it absolutely... And then she goes back into eviscerating men again by the, by the final track. But, you know, it, it's a nice little breather. I didn't feel too strongly about it. Yeah, I, I didn't have too much So to before we move on, do you wanna, can we just, like, talk a little bit about the sound of the album? Because, like, I really enjoyed a lot of the production choices that were made. I know we touched on it a little bit, but, like... Um, she uh, most of the piano on the album is actually played by her she's classically trained like i mentioned and um except for a couple of the points like on criminal those like um hold on a second those piano flourishes those crazy piano flourishes near the end of criminal those are a couple of the other producers but like yeah i guess what did you guys think of that overall just like the sound I really like the fact that she's relying on this more bluesy sort of approach compared to the other two on this uh, on this episode because we've got like Alanis who's doing like a very hard rock sort of pop hybrid and then you've got the Cranberries who are borrowing a lot from like the late 80s that kind of like echoey ethereal sort of build and then Fiona is borrowing from like jazz and blues these like sort of chromatics in the piano lines. I can't really production per se but i like her musical vocabulary a lot yeah that was definitely a really nice sound to it very pretty much all those things and sort of it's in that same sort of like dreamy complex in a way that a lot of the 90s you don't really think of with 90s rock that also fits in with like a couple x that we discussed earlier like stereo lab and the cardigans but also sort of brings to mind uh the boatman's call by nick cave and the bad seeds like the like the sound just very somber and yeah, jazzy. Yeah, definitely. There's, I think this is the least poppy of the three records that we have here today. There's more um, influences from like, I guess, trip hop and classical music and um, Baroque pop and other, other kinds of influences than you would hear 
the, from like the other two records. So those are a bit more mainstream in their sound, which isn't at all a bad thing. Love mainstream music. But first taste. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say first taste. I feel like more of the electronic dance feel. But yeah, the rest of uh-huh. it would be like top of the pop charts in 1952. Right. Right. Definitely. Well, yeah, it's a very promising debut. I mean, it was at the time, and she's um, put out four albums since then. So about one every five or six years. She she takes her time. So, but she's still getting her laurels. She's still making good music, and yeah, no, someone I definitely respect a lot, Fiona Apple. Good for her. Yeah. Ready to move on? I think we are, and. Um... I think it's a little bit ironic that the only artist we're covering that doesn't have a fruit in their name is up next. Uh, of course. We've got the apple and then the cranberries and then in the middle we have Alanis Morissette, who is my pick for this episode with, of course, Jagged Little Pill. So uh, shall I launch right in with my quick little bio of Miss Morissette? You shall. Excellent. So unlike Fiona Apple, uh, Alanis Morissette is actually the child of two teachers. She didn't really have any connections in the industry starting out. Uh, She is a twin. She has a twin brother and an older brother. Uh, She's a native to Canada. Oh, gosh, I don't remember what province. Um, She was actually on like a children's television show for a few episodes, which is really interesting. It's not something that you would expect as an early career for her, but given her later transition into like 80s and 90s pop. I guess you can kind of see it as like the Canadian version of the Disney star trajectory. Uh, She wrote, she recorded two albums, I believe, that were in that very like synth sort of dance pop sort of style. She was even an opening act for Vanilla Ice of all people once. (laughs) Uh, She eventually moved out to, gosh, I think it was LA where she was signed with Maverick Records in 1995. Uh, That's Madonna's label. And it was through that signing with Maverick and a very bad breakup that she completely reinvented her image and went from this, like, cute teeny bopper pop star to alt-rocker Alanis Morissette with the release of You Oughta Know, the first single off of Jagged Little Pill. And with that, I think we can get into it. Any information I've missed? Not that I'm aware of. She's from Ottawa, by the way. Ottawa, uh, by way of Toronto, and then she moved to LA. Okay, cool. I thought she was from Toronto, but I feel like I assume every Canadian's from Toronto, and I didn't want to be weird. <laughs> oh no, she lived there. She tried to make it big in Toronto at first. Then it's not so bad in LA. Makes sense. I don't know. It was pretty bad in LA. All right. So I've never been to LA though. So I don't know. no, it, that's the joke. <laughs> If my experience with 100 degree temperatures today means anything. I was raised in California near San Diego, and I can say as a native Californian, L.A. is awful and I hate it. There we go. (laughs) So Um, who wants to start off with Jagged Little Pill? Because it was my pick, so I feel like I have a lot to say, but I don't want to hog the time. I mean, I'm just going to attack it head on. I think You Ought to Know should be the Canadian national anthem. They need to change it, like right now. It's just, it's a great song. <laughs> you know, her vocal delivery is top-notch. There's like 
a simultaneous rage and coolness that she kind of pulls off really effortlessly as she just like tells this person off who's jilted her you know it's it's one of those signature songs of the 90s and it's just one that's really easy to yell the lyrics along to yeah if fiona apple is like the cool anger of somebody who's been pushed past their breaking point and is going to just tear you down ender's game style alanis morissette is like the hot anger of somebody who pushed you from behind and now you're just reeling back to punch them. Yes, yeah. there it is. There it is. Yeah. yeah, she she has like these like her voice cracks. You know, she really sells it. The voice cracks on this song. You know, and she's yelling like you, 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 I don't know. Like I'm not I really don't like it when um artists, especially like punk rock artists, do that a lot, but I think she sells it. It's cute on she her. Sells it on all I, um, she sells it on You Ought to Know. All I Really Want gets a little too much for me. Yeah, I agree. I love All I Really Want. I love that song, but it's, it's not perfect. I agree. Yeah, Jagged Little Pill, for my money, is a whole album about like mess and contradiction and about trying to find resolution in that. I find Alanis to be a more self-aware. Sorry, Caleb. I'll let you speak soon. But I find her to be a more self her to be a more self-aware vocalist and lyricist than Fiona, definitely. But that's not surprising given their age difference. Um, it definitely shows in the lyrics. Yeah, Alanis is old enough to be self-conscious. <laughs> yeah, I would say as far as like the singing and lyrics. She sounds a lot like Four Non Blondes and the Hey Yeah 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 song, mm-hmm. but with the most emotional intensity and very singer songwritery jumble mess of different images that are all junk- crashing against each other to make it actually work with all the yodeling and keying and hawing. But yeah. And yeah, you want to know just all the. It's just so catchy. At least the vocals are catchy. I honestly feel like her instrumentals aren't are very gnarled and loopy so they don't really like catch the ear as much as they do just like give her a good backing so that she can do all the different hooks yeah the instrumentals aren't the focus on you ought to know really on the whole album it's more just Mm. Atlantis as a singer that's the main point to focus on although i will say i like the fact that there is harmonica featured on this album fairly frequently (laughs) and it's apparently Atlantis herself playing harmonica and like I have no particular reason. I just think harmonica is cool and fun, and I like that she throws it in. It's a cool instrument. It sounds... I mean, it's the first thing you hear at the very beginning of All I Really Want, and I think, I think she pulls it off brilliantly. Um, and it shows up on a few other tracks. There's, like, an outro on... What was it? Head Over Feet, that one. I don't have too much else to say about that song, but um, I love the harmonica on that one, her solo that she does. Harmonica is a really good instrument for her to use because one likes her to connect her to like the there's a little bit of the Bob Dylan beatnik lyricist vibe, but like in a '90s context, so she's able to have that connection to history, but also she can just be really loud and expressive on it. So I feel like it's a good instrument to have. I actually nearly picked Head Over Feet for my most indicative of the album. So if we want to talk about Head Over Feet, I'm ready to go there. <laughs> Let's go. Sure. So I picked, I did not. I ultimately picked um, Right Through You as my most indicative. Uh, But Head Over Feet was my second choice because Head Over Feet is 
this sweet love ballad, which is a surprisingly high content on the album. Like there's this interesting tonal ratio of like the angry breakup songs that everybody thinks of when they think of Jagged Little Pill to these soft, sad ballads about the things of the past, like Your House, to these kind of uh, what I would call shrug songs, like you learned, where it's just sort of like, yeah, you know, you make mistakes, life goes on. And Head Over Feet is a soft love ballad, but it's also got a bit of that like Alanis irony to it because the chorus is essentially, it's your fault if I fall for you, you jerk. How dare you be nice to me? And so I think it strikes the balance of like the two tones that you go to this album to hear fairly well. I ended up picking Right Through You instead because I think of all three of the albums, Alanis is the one you go to for sheer rage, and right through you let, tends to land more on that side of the spectrum. Right, right through you is definitely the female rage anthem of the record, is it not? Yeah. Oh, it totally is. I don't, I don't know. I'd say it's the female rock star rage. It's very specifically about show business and like executives not caring about you until you make a bunch of money. Which is especially prescient given that Alanis was not a big artist writing the song. She didn't think this would be like her big breakout record. She was just writing what she wanted to write. And boom, third best-selling song album of the entire 90s. I will say um, there's a little bit, uh, that, that uh, point that you mentioned, Maddie, something about her not quite reflecting, her lifestyle not quite reflected in the lyrics is something I definitely felt a little um at the end of this song she says something like now that i'm miss fame now that i'm a zillionaire you scan the credits for your name wonder why it's not there was she really a zillionaire at this point though like she, she wasn't but i think that's just part of the revenge fantasy you know maybe this is because the last episode we did was salt and peppa and they also have some of this tone to them of just like when i make it big you'll be sorry but they haven't quite gotten there yet so i'm willing to let that slide Totally. It's just, it kind of undercuts the bitterness a little bit if it is a revenge fantasy. And she's not totally speaking from personal experience. Well, she did have to deal with a lot of, like, pushy executive types because she was, like, trying to oh, definitely. a teen pop star. All so. of these girls did. Yeah. So I would, I would forgive it on those grounds. Yeah, I, I really do enjoy Right Through You. It's one of my favorites on the album. Um, there's a lot of really zingy one-liners, not all of which I'm going to repeat, or any. Um, <laughs> but she she yeah, doesn't she's... like men patronizing her or mispronouncing her name. I'll, I'll repeat that one. Yeah, there's a lot of good one-liners on this album. Another good song for them is Not the Doctor. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I like that one. Which is basically, stop using me as free therapy. That's not what we're in this relationship for. You can take care of yourself. You're an adult. Mm. I really like that one. That's, that's just nice, nice and event to hear in a song every once in a while. Yeah, we love it when we love a good boundary setting song. The last couple tracks there, uh, Not the Doctor and Wake Up, are a really nice one-two punch, actually. Especially if you think they're um, geared towards the same... If you envision them being geared towards the same individual... Ooh, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Ouch. Mm. <laughs> Gotta get out of that hole that you've dug yourself into. Yeah. I will say my one thing about Nox Doctor was like a larger thing in the album is that she's just very fond of list contradiction songs, like a 
the doctor wake up and also ironic and uh one hand in my pocket where it's always like her giving a big long list of things that are like contradictions or sort of contradictions or ironic things or something like that and it was a very popular format for 90s alt rock but it did kind of get a little bit overused especially because i feel on him and pocket and ironic are two of the weaker songs Mm-hmm. that's like a general yeah I went back and forth between those two for my worst I ended up going with hand in my pocket over ironic uh, because I feel like hand in my pocket's just a little too tonally dissonant also I will defend the singability of ironic's hook as it's saving grace because there is something so fun about being able to just go <laughs> it's like rain whenever you in the car yeah speeding fast I ended up picking ironic just I realized, like, at first I was thinking, oh, it's just me being cliche, you know, oh, oh, ironic, you know, it's not actually ironic. But then I realized Lisa Loeb could have written ironic. Jewel could have written ironic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think either of them could have written uh, One Hand in My Pocket. Because even as it is kind of a lazy, uh, neo-beatnit song, it's very Alanis. It is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, okay, so I... Full disclosure, I enjoy Ironic, like, for better or for worse. I think it's a fun song to listen to as music. Um, The lyrics are dumb and cringe, and they are uninspired. I'll give it that. The segue about the plane crashing down makes me cringe in particular. It's just like, not that unsafe, you dummy. Like, (laughs) I say as I sit right now... We're actually the safest way to travel, statistically. Yeah, exactly. It's like you want to drive the entire way across the continent. Anyway, go ahead. I was just snarking that she lives in Canada, which is absurdly large. Oh, yeah. Yep. But yeah, I mean, ironic, It for better or for worse, it is one of the songs of the 90s the songs that everyone knows it's her, one of her signature songs but it is the track that made all the english majors groan because none of this stuff is actually irony it's just bad luck she has said in interviews that that was one of her intentions when writing it that she meant to write a song that was about irony that didn't include any ironies but also i don't know if that's a retcon or if she actually set out to do that from the get-go <laughs> yeah I I would bet on retcon, personally. Me too, but also, the 90s were the era of performative irony, or at least where it got started, so who knows? <laughs> um, can I get your guys... Okay, okay, just humor me. Can I get your guys' honest opinion on Hand in My Pocket? I know you mentioned that was your least favorite, Maddie. Just honest opinion. I mean, it's okay. I just... I don't quite get where it belongs in the album. That was kind of my criterion for worst this time around. Not song I objectively liked the least, but the song that I felt least belonged. If we're going by song I liked the least, my pick would be Forgiven. But I think Forgiven fits with Jagged Little Pill more than Hand in My Pocket does. Mm. I, it was not bad. Not, not a favorite, definitely. Like, I, like the, I like the hook to it, you know. With the first cadence and the I got one hand in my pockets and mm, something I should probably use both hands for is the yeah. other hand. But uh Yeah. And it, like I think it fits in with like sort of the healing themes of the album that I showed right. up on a couple tracks like Mary Jane and uh 
head over feet and you learn. Like it sort of fits with those a little more. It's just like like I mentioned before. It's a big long list of things. And some of them are actually opposites. Some of them aren't really opposites. So it's like, eh. Yeah, I'm short, but I'm healthy. Um... <laughs> yeah. And it's it's a definitely indicative of like... It's, it's one of those tracks that's just bursting with those odd one-liners that don't quite totally make sense. Um, I'm sure you guys will recall when we were in college, I worked in the scene shop. And um, there was one day I recall in particular where... Um, I was painting the front of the stage, and we had a speaker in the scene shop to play our just like whatever music we wanted to, our playlist for the shop. And our lighting director, his name was Michael, bless him, he comes over and um, asks, and right, this song, Hand in My Pocket, is playing because I had added it to the playlist. He tells me, is that Alanis Morissette? Ugh, she's terrible. I don't know why anyone likes her. And I'm just like, what? And then the girl who's like volunteering next to me painting the stage also just tells me, yeah, I'm not really feeling this one, this song right now. And I'm just like, I'm speechless. Like, I'm too stunned to, to say anything because like, what? I don't know, what do you do? But <laughs> I don't know. I like this song. I just I had mean, to get a bit I've of a reality I also had change. a theater professor from our college roast me for my music taste, so you're not alone. No, and it's just like, Michael, on the very, very, very low off chance that you're listening, um, your music taste sucks, and so did the Moody Blue. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> no, no, just don't be hating on Alanis, please. She's got some bops. And she's continued to make bops as well. Like, she's oh. still recording music up until, gosh... I know she's been recording albums in the 2010s. I don't know if she's done one this decade yet. Um, what about, didn't she, okay, so I know I mentioned this earlier in the chat, but, like, there was a musical about Jagged Little Pill. I don't know if this is, like, the best time yeah, to Yeah, no, this up. I think somebody made a jukebox <laughs> musical about Jagged Little Pill, like, two years yeah. ago. Was she involved, because I know it was, like, a jukebox musical. Was she actually oh, involved gosh, in writing I... a book, though? I don't know if she was involved in writing the book. I will look that up. Just give me one second. Uh, uh, the book was by a guy called Diablo Cody. Never mind. Mm. You've got it. <laughs> and I see. Yes. I've only ever really heard about this musical through the Twitter discourse that um, surrounded it at the time of its release, <laughs> which probably isn't the best source of information for anything, really. But, people but on the other hand, it, like, it's problematic, a transphobic. Yeah, I, yeah. So, she can't be held responsible for whatever went on if she wasn't the one um, writing the book. She's just collecting her checks. Um, before we move on, I couldn't find a better place to put this, but before we move on, I would just like to point out the absolute sleeper hit that is Mary Jane from Jagged Little Pill. I love that song so much. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I almost, nice. given everything we've listened to this week, I know she wasn't, but I almost feel like she was writing that song for Fiona Apple. Like, there's a mm. bit of dialogue there. It's the only song yes. called Mary Jane yeah. that isn't about marijuana. Right? I was surprised yeah. that it was not an elaborate metaphor. Totally what I was expecting when I went into it for the first time, but nope. No, it's a song about the pressure women are under to constantly give of themselves and never take time to make themselves happy because they think that's what they have to do. 
You mean like perfect? Yeah, but perfect is specifically about like overbearing parents. Mary Jane is yeah. more we live in a society. That's true. That's true. I know this is going to be really controversial, but I actually chose perfect as my least favorite. Um, oh. I get what she was trying to go for um, with the lyrics. The overbearing parents, the emotional, um, gosh, what was it? This high expectations and conditional love, you know, because I think we've all been there to some extent with like to some kind of with some kind of authority figure at least. But I just don't totally think she sells it here, you know? I, the sound of the track is kind of unmemorable. The melody's just meh, and the wailing on the bridge really isn't my favorite. I know I said she really pulls off the wailing and vocal cracks on you. I don't know. She doesn't hear. In my opinion. I, I do like it, but also I'm like a, su I'm a sucker for a song about, you know, bad stuff like this. And like, so, I don't know. I don't have I any stronger she... thing than like, I tend to gravitate towards songs that are like, you know, Wow, that is a heartfelt thing. Yeah, I liked Perfect, but given I didn't like Hand in My Pocket, I think we're square. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's just a, it's a matter of personal taste with the lesser tracks, I think. Uh, we can all agree that You Oughta Know is a freaking banger, right? Oh, absolutely. Is, yeah. Are you kidding? So that's yeah. all that matters, yes. Canada's new please, national anthem. All please rise. imagine the Canadians winning something at the Olympics and all of a sudden you hear... Yeah. Yeah. And you have to sing along with it too. That's required. <laughs> like mispronouncing Arkansas. You have to say it right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one of my favorites before we move on really quickly. Um did we we didn't talk about this one too much, but Forgiven. Um it's kind of about the experience of existential malaise and the guilt hangups of growing up Catholic, which she explicitly says as much in the first two lines. Um, yeah, I just I, I like all of her um, one liners on this one. Her um, shout outs to, you know, growing up with certain things that she's internalized baggage. Um, and, you know, it's just it's. Yeah, how did you guys feel about this one? Forgiven was one of the ones that I didn't like, but I recognize why it's on the album, if that makes sense. I, this is a personal thing. I don't, I, as somebody who is religious, I am very tired of the, I have grown up and therefore now can deconstruct my religion and put away childish things sort of narrative. But also I get what she's going through and I respect it. It's just not for me, if that it's makes sense. Gotcha. It is a very typically Alanis song in that it's her wailing about all these internal contradictions and all this stuff that she's trying to process and get rid of. And I respect that part of it. I mean, as someone who isn't religious and has deconstructed in said fashion, I mean, I personally relate to it a lot. So, but I understand where you're coming from, though, definitely. I, I liked it. I did like the imagery and, like, Gerald. Yeah, I like the line about her having just one more question that never got answered. I kind of like how she links one little point. I kind of like how she links the um, I know she, there's a lot of female rage throughout this, but like she links this like male gaze, so to speak, to the whole mechanism of guilt and confession. 
Or she says, I confess my darkest deeds to an envious man. I thought that was a little Oh, yeah, that was a good line. <laughs> Alanis also went to Catholic school growing up, so it's not just that she was raised Catholic. <laughs> yeah. I would say my other note on this one was just that, like, it almost sounds like evanescency? Or, like, mm. you know... Oh, like, you're right! Just kind of... Like for some, somehow she just like managed to look five years into the future and figure out what like sort of the lighter end of metal would sound like for this one, which I guess sort of makes sense for the general vibe of the song. But it was like it was an interesting it was an interesting contrast. It's also an interesting point of comparison with Criminal, where one song is one song is imagery of confession being used to explore the secular world, and the other is imagery from the secular world being used to explore religion. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. I love interplay between those two worlds, honestly. Especially when artists can pull it off really well, which I, I think Alanis kind of does here. It's a track I enjoy. You know, I, I sense that there's a lot of like trauma that's like buzzing underneath that she doesn't quite directly address here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But she doesn't have to. Whenever you're comfortable, Alanis. I mean, you're pretty clearly already comfortable with many things, but, like, if there's other things. Build the tea on your engagement with Ryan Reynolds. That's what I want to know about. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so what's that all about? She was engaged to Ryan Reynolds in 2008. They broke it off, and she ended up writing an album about it. So I guess she kind of already spilled the tea, per se, but... Wait, an unreleased album, or did, was it, No, like... she, like, released an album right after they broke up. No kidding. I just... That's my favorite, like, Kevin Bacon-esque sort of trivium now, that Alanis Morissette was once engaged to Ryan Reynolds. Ow. Okay. And she can crank out an album quickly enough to have it right after the breakup, I guess. Like, go off, honestly. <laughs> I know. It's a common theme between the ladies we've been discussing here, cranking out good music quickly. I mean, when you have... Oh, well, not really. I mean, as you've kind of alluded to, I think a lot of the music that we were listening to for this episode was born out of having to deal with the male-dominated industry as a female musician, which gives you a lot of fodder for songwriting. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the music industry is first and foremost a corporation. You need to be marketable, and you need to release on a consistent schedule, and you need to do this and say that, and, and these, there's a lot of friction going on here. Yeah. Yeah, is there any um, points that we didn't really touch on with this album? Any other uh, favorite tracks? I thought, I think I thought we're good you to learned. Move to I thought you oh, learned. You was learned. Really good. Yeah. That was my favorite track. Oh, yeah. It was. It was nice just because it's like Alanis having a song about you know being able to take the pain and you know build from it, which was like, hey, Alanis, you're being able to overcome some. Yay. And that was nice to yeah. hear, just because a lot of the album was just so... Oof. Got another really excellent chorus. I mean, she has an ear for hooks, and this is absolutely no exception. Oh, absolutely. And also it has that nice, really 
really nice opening lyric with the I recommend my <laughs> recommend getting your heart trampled um, to anyone. Mm. Which is like, well, I kind of like that lyrical basis. framing. I recommend all these like terrible things <laughs> because eventually they'll be good for you in the end. Yeah. And it's the kind of an ironic statement. Hey, look. I yeah, there it. you go. <laughs> she knows how to write things. And this song is also the um, origin of that jagged little pill title, Swallow It Down, What a Jagged Little Pill. So, what's the significance of the album title in response, in, like, in light of this? That's our million-dollar question for the English majors in the back. <laughs> uh, this is the, the entire album, the jagged little pill, all the bad experiences with religious trauma and show business and parents and ex-boyfriends. Just being with the industry. In Canada. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, kind no, of how really medicine works, right? It's nasty yeah. in the moment, but once you swallow it and go through it, you become the better for, better for it. Mm-hmm. Or you die. I mean, no, yeah. Oh, wait, no, that's not medicine. That's disease. So you can still die from the medicine, but if you take the wrong medicine. Eh, any medicine's <laughs> takeable at least once. <laughs> Can we have some horse stew warmer? Oh my word. That's gonna date this recording. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, you, you can see the date on Spotify when you scroll down, to be fair, yeah. but. Yeah, this will come out like. I'm know, just being kind of November, though, so I don't know. Normally. Anywho. Yeah, that's all I got. Alanis. She writes songs yeah. that are sad. Oh. Should we move to the Cranberries, who are writing songs that are sad in a completely different way? Oh yeah, they're good. Yeah. Actually, I don't do a very good Irish accent, so I'm not going to try. But uh, yeah, a little background around about the Cranberries. So, they started off around 1989 as four lads from Limerick, Ireland, who were really into the indie rock of the day. Their names were Niall Quinn, uh, Noel and Mike Hogan, and uh, Fergal Lawler. And they started putting songs together in a band that was called The Cranberry Saw Us, which is a terrible name, but it also kind of fits given that it was the late 80s in England and there was a big thing about bringing back the 60s at the time. And then uh, Niall had to quit, and so they started putting ads out for to find a female singer, and in comes Loris O'Riordan, who's an extremely Irish woman, very small, but immediately, and kind of shy, but immediately wows them with her vocals and songwriting ability. And they come together as a band. And at first it's pretty rough. Uh, let's see. At their live shows, they keep playing too quietly and get drowned out by the audience. One of their first EPs does terribly. Uh, they were supposed to open for Nirvana, and but Kurt got sick so he couldn't come overseas. Uh, their manager was making all sorts of shifty deals. And also they were still called The Cranberry Saw Us. So they pretty quickly uh, dropped the name into just The Cranberries hired their manager and started working with producer Stephen Street, who also worked on Strange Ways, Here We Come by the Smiths and the first five Blur albums. And they put together this album. Everybody else is doing it, so why don't we? Which they start going on tour with The V and Suede over in America, and they start getting more popular. MTV starts playing Linger and Dreams, and off the back of those, they beat them. They start getting more of a hit presence. On their next album, it has Zombies, which is also a big hit. Uh, the next few albums, they try out different producers. They don't really have a crossover, so they kind of fade from popular consciousness. 
There's all these rumors about them breaking up so that Dolores could have a solo career, but they don't until 2002, and she doesn't have a solo album until 2007. And meanwhile, the other members get into other side projects, and also Mike runs a little coffee shop. And around 2010, they reunite. Uh, they start recording again, including an album called Something Else, which is just recordings of their older songs, but with a chamber orchestra. While they're working on another album, uh, sadly, Dolores does pass away, she drowns, and the remaining members decide to finish up the album dedicated to her and call it a day. And so this is, everybody else is doing it, so why don't we, uh, their big debut album and helps get them to become the fourth largest uh, selling Irish act in music history, right behind U2, Enya, and a boy band called Westlife. So yeah. How you guys want to start off? Well, we all have the same favorite song, right? Dreams. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. picked it's Dreams for best one. and for most indicative. <laughs> yeah, Dreams was a nice song. Who's got thoughts? I mean, those harmonies are just really gorgeous and lilting and... <laughs> uh, you know, it's like there's... Most of the album is just so steeped in this emotional entanglement and this gritty exploration of like the ups and downs of a relationship and how emotions work in that and um this this is kind of a welcome reprieve from that i think it's interesting that she puts it so close to the beginning though or they put it so close to the beginning i keep forgetting it's not just her but it's like blondie all over again yeah right I mean, yeah, I'll sense. admit, listening I'll admit. to... Oh, sorry, you go. Sorry. You go. So, Dreams is interesting to me because as somebody who doesn't know a lot about, like, contemporary, as in right now, music, I would listen to this album and think to myself, did, did the Cranberries predict Vaporwave? Because <laughs> it's got a lot of that same aesthetic, like, there's this acoustic, but it's really echoey and floaty. There's these, like, ethereal backup vocals. It's like I, I would say it's more that they were very in tune with what was popular around the alternative scenes of like the mid 80s to the early 90s because there's a lot of elements that they took, uh, especially the sort of jingle pop style of like the Smiths and the Laws, but also there's a little bit of post punk style like you know Cure and the general 4AD sound, but there's and like cream pop stuff from Cocteau Twins and maybe even a little bit of Inya and New Agey vocals and like those just all sort of come together and they bring it into something that's still extremely dreamy but has more of a very sensible pop structure to it. It's a lot more accessible. And so, and also doesn't have like Jingle Pop's tendency to be, you know, schmarmy and overbearing. Screw you, Morrissey. So, I feel like that's more how they came to that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and they were huge Smiths fans also. Like, they were just... There are, like, tinges of that, um, I guess, I'm not too well-versed in, like, like, I, I know we discussed this a little while ago, but the trip-hop sounds of the 90s, but, like, it kind of, a few tracks on this record vaguely reminded me of that, especially that Closer put me down, where um, it was, like, really soft and lulling, but, like, also there's, like, this heavy percussion that's kind of fuzzed out going on in the background. Which I thought was a really nice listen. 
could definitely fit in with some of those trip hop tracks. And they do like their expressive but cool toned lady vocalists over into the trip hop area. So, like, I'm not sure how much of that was just like from cultural osmosis, just or or whether they directly listened to those kinds of artists. But I just thought the sound was kind of familiar. Thought that was cool. <laughs> For me, this album was a lot less of a lyrical experience than the others. Not that the lyrics weren't good, just this was the one that was the easiest to just sit and listen to as far as a soundscape went, whereas having to actually think about the lyrics for Fiona and for Alanis. Yeah, yeah one of my main points for the record was actually um, that because she wrote all the lyrics, so I guess we can refer to her as the speaker in this case, but like her Dolores's lyrics are just very economical and they're um, they're not really telling detailed narratives so much as they are just creating a vibe in, in most cases, which really works, I think. You know, it suits the fuzzy yeah. alt rock sound, but it's also like it's just excellent as pop music because you need repetition and you need abstraction in order to create a good like pop song. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot more just like these very resonant emotions that aren't really tied down with all of the different psychoanalytical things that you can throw at the other two albums, definitely. Not like mm. not super big on like imagery, it's just like Oh, I'm in love with your laddie. Or oh laddie, you right. broke my heart. These people got an ear for hooks, too, though. A lot of these songs are oh, yeah. quite catchy. I mean, Linger. Oh, I, Linger's I, I so good. That one as my most indicative song, personally. Um, again, yeah, the ups, kind of a back down. and forth between Dreams and Linger. Yeah. No, it's... Th this, this is kind of like their signature song, right? Or, well, I mean, there's also <laughs> Zombie, but I actually don't like that song, so... <laughs> I'm going to choose this one. Also, Linger's that one's not nice. on this album. Yeah. But yeah, Linger's very nice. Very lovesick. And it's and rose-tinted, you know. It's super, you know. Just got this weird feel where it's like, it's nice, but you can also tell that it's malignant. And like, it's a very interesting emotional cocktail you got going I mean, that kind of contradiction is a pretty common feature in all three of these albums, I think. Yeah. In these three albums, I think emotionally you would start with the Cranberries, then go to Alanis, then go to Fiona. I completely backwards. We I need to go also start in the entire order. album again. Because <laughs> you've got, like, the Cranberries, which is this, like, the song about like these frustrations and about this feeling of isolation and malaise and things starting to break down. And then you have Alanis, who's like this, this scream of rage as the breakup is happening. And then you have Fiona, who's sort of like, I've moved on, I'm stronger, nobody can hurt me anymore. I mean, that's like I an know, interesting progression. I, I, but keep in mind, though, that um, I think Alanis has a more mature take 
as we discuss, like on things than Fiona does. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and like you said, she was sort of writing to her younger self. So, um, I guess if you wanted to like write, if you were writing a narrative for reality TV, yes, absolutely, you could do that. But um, yeah. I guess I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to say this without it coming off weird. So I'll just put it out there. Um, this album is very like Irish. It sounds very Irish. Um, there's a lot of like hints of like folk melodies, and um, I guess you can hear her accent in a lot of the tracks and the way she delivers um, certain vocal riffs. Um, yeah, and some of the bridges being like that kind of like oh, really? sort of like. That's that's come on Eileen, but uh, <laughs> yeah. vibe. right, you right. Know, like a Sunday where it's like, do you have to hold my hand? You mm, mystify right. me. That was a very Irish. right, was my pick, right. The way she. Um, Which I think is part of the reason why they're recognizable like that accent and that borrowing from those musical traditions helps them stand out yeah it is very actually i don't know how you guys are actual singers how hard is it to like have your natural speaking accent be this pronounced in your vocals i mean my accent probably shows up when i sing but also i just default american Singing in an accent different from your own is difficult, but not impossible. I mean, from the amount of time we had to spend in choir, Maddie, just like doing vowel training and like, uh, yeah. Although I'll contend yeah. that that's not an accent; that's just best practice for choral singing because everybody needs. Well, that. yes, but it, it applies for it applies for all kinds of singing and all kinds of um, vocal delivery. If you're going to sing a pop song, you can't like. Certain accents simply don't mesh well with that. You need to have that trained out. Um, yeah, I mean, you definitely hear it, but it's not like it's not like in your face, you know. I guess that's sort of my point that I was trying to make earlier. I'm not. Yeah, I just. I think it's great. It's just not not like super blatantly. Yeah, it's not like they're picking up a fiddle and an accordion and singing a song about whiskey. Yes, precisely. That, that would be the American-Irish approach. They're Irish. Yes. Irish. Right. No, like, they have a really tasteful image. What was that? I see you with the Dropkick Murphys. Hand it over there. Yeah, we're not taking that approach. <laughs> Um, any other, like, really favorite tracks of yours? I really like the ones where she's just, like, slow and smoldering, like, pretty and not sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, those were on my list. The female like rage I, again. I really like the intro of How. I like that the percussion's a little bit more prominent. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think I... Yeah, Pretty was definitely yeah. a really nice one. Like, sort of the eeriness to it. Uh, and also how her voice her does the little crack with "You're so pretty." And, uh, mm -hmm. Yes, Sunday was really nice because it has the really pretty intro, and then it goes into the very poppy one. And I think that was my pick for the most indicative, just because it like has both sides. Put me down was a really sad outro. Mm -hmm. I will always 
towards the end. That one I had as my default worst just because it like was so obviously riffing on the mopey waltz songs of the Smiths and you just can't really out mope Morrissey. So it was just like showing your cards here, lads. I have the same problem with this one that I did with Title, where it it's such a level album that I had trouble picking a worst. Um, so I wrote in my notes, throws dart at dartboard. Okay, it still can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few that kind of flag towards the end of the album for me. Um, because like I said, they, most of the songs are not so much narratives as vibes, and the vibe isn't quite as strong near the back half. I'm not a huge fan of still can't. Um, Instrumental is just kind of repetitive. It's not my favorite listen. I, I just felt it was like decent enough. Like I don't think it would make it to my top half for the album, but right. Yeah, it's not like there's a bad song. It's just there are less good ones. As long as we can all agree that Dreams is like the smash hit. Oh, oh Dreams yeah. is good. At least Dreams in our is hearts. awesome. Yeah. Dolores is the real. Dolores actually said that Dreams and Linger are the two songs she's most proud of, she's most proud of from a lyrical standpoint. Aww. Wow. <laughs> and I would concur, personally. Oh yeah, Waltzing It Back was nice. That was another one that sounded very Irish. Oh yes. Yes, that yeah, backing melody. Back. I feel like I can dance to some of these. And that's definitely one of those. But yeah, I don't have too much more to say about this one. It's very nice. Very wonderful yeah. listen. Yeah, lyrical analysis is kind of where I tend to lean with this sort of thing. And when most of the songs hey. are vibes, I don't have a lot to say. Hunter was another one that was nice because it was like more specific thing where it's like, she tried very hard to be like, you know, a fulfilling and healthy romantic partner and just couldn't. And like, that's like a, oh no, baby. Or Dolores. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that is kind mm -hmm. of a case of life influencing art because Dolores has also mentioned in the interview that like, she was not a very healthy romantic partner for a lot of her life due to a di later a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So that's also very much her writing from her own experience. Yeah, having to deal with that like, while you're also being a rock star. Oh, yeah. Not to... mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not a good lifestyle if you're already prone to manic phases. Mm. Not saying well, obviously sure she... that people with bipolar disorder can't be trusted or aren't faithful partners or anything like that. Just saying that if that's something you're dealing with and you don't know that you're dealing with it, it's going to make some stuff more challenging. Mm. And also I'm just glad she at least... Yeah, I mean, I'm glad she at least recognized that. Um, especially, I think it was after her divorce that she got diagnosed for bipolar near the end of her life, <laughs> which I'm really glad that she was outspoken about that as well. Oh, that's about all I got. I think so. Wrap it up. 
But yeah, we have a three wonderful 90s ladies, um, two of whom are still with us, making great music. Go check them out. Yeah. Check them all out. Go by title. Get Fiona Apple the triple platinum. We can oh, do yeah. it. Oh, yeah. We got to get her to triple plat, babes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The 30th anniversary of the album's coming up. Let's see if we can make it happen. I mean, she should do a reissue. That would do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Probably. Well, that's about all the time that we have for our Lilith Fair reenactment today. Uh, the albums we listened to were titled by Fiona Apple, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, and Everybody Else is Doing It, So Why Can't We? by The Cranberries. Why can't we do it? Because we already did it. I'm Caleb Clark. I'm Maddie Campbell. And I'm Eric Rake. And thank you for listening to the Billy Shears Club. <laughs>